You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour. And Herds, it's finally time for you to get back in the Solven chair. Oh, Flex has been too long. It has been. It's finally my time to show everyone that I can solve a murder mystery. How how long has it been? Because we had it was you know uh, we, we took a we took a break yeah. from giving points out for uh, Tales from Two Pockets. Then we had Supporter mm-hmm. Drive. Yep. Then I was the uh, the blind man for sins for Father Knox. It's like basically basically two whole months, three whole months or something. It's crazy. Ugh. It's been way too long. But no, it's been all the way since since Caves of Steel, in which I managed to rest a point at the last second. Just so I'm looking forward to an opportunity to do that again. Of course. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This is No Crime in the Mountains by Raymond Chandler. Yes. Today we are covering chapters one to four of this wonderful story, and oh my goodness, the work it gets done in this period. So quick. So punchy. We were speaking uh, about Raymond Chandler actually on our last episode of Tales from Two Pockets. Ooh. Diosa Skoreski, who mm. is our previous author, first got into crime fiction by translating Raymond Chandler. Exciting. I can see why you picked him for this uh, for this week then. Yeah. It's uh, it's really interesting because I don't think that there is so huge of a writing influence in Skoreski's work. Mm. But, you know, it's obviously still been very influential on how yeah. he got into it. and Still obviously a big part of his development yeah. as a writer. So, yeah. And, you know, with us doing this Murder Mystery World Tour, tracing authors' inspirations around the world, what better place to go than Raymond Chandler? Of course, of course. Yeah, Raymond Chandler was one of the kind of founders, the the forefathers of hard-boiled crime, the style that I guess has kind of become the mainstay of modern private eye. Yeah, a little bit noir. Fiction, yeah. A little bit of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm into it. Um, you know, he obviously wasn't the the first to do many things, but he was one of the pioneers <laughs> of the genre uh, and the particular style of the genre. Mm. Um, he originally was a, was a bookkeeper at an oil company, worked his way up to vice president of the company, uh-huh. got fired in the Great Depression, <laughs> and then started writing crime fiction. He threw it all away. So, <laughs> no, he got fired. <laughs> he was thrown that's away. That's right, that's right. He was thrown away, and then he showed them what's what by coming back and but yeah. picking up a more, you know, a more important profession, murder mm. mystery writing. Exactly, but course. coming out of, you know, the Great Depression and that period of history, obviously I think that's going to be very influential on what we see in his works. The The visuals are very effectively carried out, especially yep. having just come from stories <laughs> like Tales from Two Pockets and uh, Caves of Steel, where the visual detail is very light. Yep. There's one particular moment here where our detective, John Evans, gets clocked in the back of the head and it's like, oh my, my head went sailing out across the lake and you're like, What's just happened? And then you get to the end of the passage and it's like, oh, that was just him describing yeah. being hit in he, the back of the head. It's phenomenal. He describes how a thousand years pass and then a planet hit him in the back. It's <laughs> fantastic. Him getting hurt is the most it's the most enjoyable part of the entire novel, honestly. It's my favorite part. It's like, how is he going to describe being hurt next? You know? Yeah. That's, that's what and I'm looking forward to. It's not to. like slapstick humor either. No, no. It's like, it's just him being overdramatic in his descriptions yeah. in such a... I think perfect way. Any any more would have been too much. Too much. Yeah, it would be unrealistic. But it's just enough that yeah. you do a double take. Yeah. Like, did I really just read that? Did he really just say <laughs> that he uh, someone had tied a weight to his gun? Oh, he's just tired. Like, yeah. Yeah. The other nice thing about this story being so short is that like each chapter is an event. Mm-hmm. Some of the stories we've covered, you know, it, a, a chapter is like a sequence, and to some yeah. extent, that's how longer chapters should be, and that's how shorter chapters should be. But 
I think that this is a great example of that in that it is like, here is where he arrives and finds the crime. Yes. Here is where he is threatened. It's so neatly organized. Yeah, it's really helpful also for theory crafting. Yeah. Means there is no chance of me getting lost. He could have very easily just, he could have just not used chapters or split them up into like, here's the first third of the story and the second and the third. But each chapter is effectively one singular scene. Two of the four chapters we've read so far have ended with the discovery of a corpse. Yes. Like, it just gets into it, and the endings of the chapters are really punchy and excellent, and you're just thinking, oh, like, a book, what's going to happen at the start of the next chapter? Where are we going to go? What's the next scene going to be? You know, where are we going to go? Who are we going to meet? It's fantastic. It's also really nice that, as you say, the end of the first chapter is the corpse gets discovered. Like, you know, it's not to say that it's better or worse to do it one way or the other but sure. when you have such a punchy story it's nice not getting to the third chapter and being like all right come on who's getting killed <laughs> where's the corpse now <laughs> and now we have two corpses which is a which is a nice change of pace exactly. i think yeah no i mean definitely breaking van dyne's rules yes, there yes i i feel like especially we're, we're gonna go into like the broader discussion of the novel here i mean we we spend hardly any time well the readers spend hardly any time at the scene of the crime. Evan spends half an hour <laughs> sitting on the corpse, not knowing that it's there. But like, I'm getting a very different kind of sense of this novel. I feel like it's a bit less about, you know, mm. solving a locked room mystery or figuring out exactly who's killed who and more this like broader crime drama kind of hodgepodge, if that makes sense. Like this conspiracy kind yeah. of thing that's going on here. Which so I you're like. telling me that it's also breaking more of Van Dyne's rules? Yes. I am telling you that Van Dyne would not be happy with this story. So what you're telling me is mm. that this story was just Chandler's revenge for his films not getting made yeah. on account of Van uh-huh. Dyne. Yeah. He said... You know, you know, everybody that he went to was like, you know, those movies that Van Dyne did, they would never have worked at this day and age. <laughs> and he says, that's rubbish. I'm going to show you how to make a story that can be adapted to the movies. Or, or he is. came in and he's like, look, I wrote a story and it's so against Van Dyne's <laughs> rules that it will work in cinema. Yeah, it's so totally opposite, which I mean, <laughs> that's not an inaccurate statement. Like the sort of thing he's writing here would totally fly as a, as a movie these days. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So yeah, Herds, before before we get too deep into your solutions there, because obviously mm-hmm. we'll get into that in the later part of the show, but we've been invited here by a letter from a man named Fred Lacey, who yeah. is the one found dead on the ground at He's the end dead. of the first chapter. Killed with a twenty-two. Yeah, supposedly, supposedly it's Fred Lacey. The only the only way we know it's him is because of an ID card found in his pocket. Apparently, yeah. Yes. Well, well, we know because uh, his wife confirms his identity. Well, yes, but his wife is obviously tied up in this crime to some extent. I mean, extent. clearly. So she could be lying. Yeah, maybe. Te- technically, technically, it does have his photo on the ID. So maybe I'm walking on thin ice here, Herds, but, you know, maybe there's foreshadowing for his wife and the ID being forged. His wife being forged, that's not right. You know what? Maybe, <laughs> maybe there is something for that there. I know. I, I've, been looking, I've been looking at the clues as, as sparse as they are in the short story, and maybe I've got a theory that might blow Mrs. Lacey's concerns I'd certainly out of the hope water. so. You don't have but, long to uh, solve it. I know, I know. But we're going to be looking at that in, in part three of today's episode. Mm. I, I did find some sources online that said that John Evans is actually a pseudonym given to Philip Marlowe, oh. Chandler's like main detective, but I will confirm for you that does not say at any point in this book whether this is the case, <laughs> but it does at least make me excited that if this opinion exists out there, even if the book doesn't say it, means that the things I like about John Evans are present in Chandler's other works. That's good. That's good. A bit of consistency there, even if it's not, you know, canonical or whatever. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course, I 
I do believe that uh, No Crime in the Mountains was later turned into one of his longer novels, which we, we could have covered on the show, but I decided <laughs> that it was maybe a bit more our pace to kind of go for the quick, exciting one I'm that okay apparently that. is the most humorous of his tales. I, I will say I am enjoying the character. I suppose, look, we've been introduced to a couple of characters now, but John Evans is the only one we've really gotten to see the meat and potatoes of, I feel. Mm. Um, we've also met, like, a secretary and Mrs. Lacey and Charlie, who is, like an insane character. Yeah. Um, he has like a gold tooth and glasses mm. and he speaks like a caricature of like a, like an old, like like some Asian crime boss or something. Like, yeah. is he a Bond villain? What is going on there? But yeah. I, <laughs> I'm impressed <laughs> at the amount of character that I'm getting uh, in such a short period of time, which is always a good feeling to have. Yeah. there. The, I, I was really confused by his initial, um, you know, his initial appearance in the story. Cause I was like, is, is this like meant to be like a racist stereotype or is the guy I, just like dumb? Or I think like, it is. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm mainly basing that off some, some theory stuff yeah. later, but like, it, it's interesting it's to clear. look at because, you know, obviously if it's a racist stereotype and that's mm. how he's choosing to portray the race rather than describing it, yeah. is that like, Better or worse, it's a bit weird. It's definitely strange. Is it to supposed read. to be a deliberate thing that I'm supposed to think about and like unpack and figure out, like what is going yeah. on there? I I did have a moment where I was like, is this his alternative for like actual character <laughs> description? Is just yeah. for them to be like shoehorned into a stereotype? Yeah, yeah. Let's just say that Raymond Chandler would never pass the test of Knox and Van Dyne. I don't think so. No, <laughs> I don't think he would. Is yeah. Charlie the Chinaman? We will see. What? Yeah, it's so weird. Of course, if you're curious about these rules we keep mentioning, you can always find out about Knox and Van Dyne's rules on the podcast online. Get on there. Get on the website. Check it out. Ah, oh, herds. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to hear your solutions. I'm excited to hear everything go wrong. I'm ready for no crime in the mountains because that's what's <laughs> happening. No crime at all. Not even one crime. Alrighty. <laughs> you're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is No Crime in the Mountains. We'll be back in just a second. This is Flex and Herds, bringing you Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour. Today, our guest with us is Mr. John Dale, professor of writing at UTS and author of several novels on the subject of crime, including best-selling novel Huckstep. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. John, here on Death of the Reader, this is our first dive into Raymond Chandler's works with No Crime in the Mountains. It's been described as a long, short story, and to us, a taste of Chandler's broader crime novel empire. With some more experience under your belt, John, what are some of the defining hallmarks that you've observed within his work? I think he he was really he really set the bar of crime fiction. I think um, Dashiell Hammett and Chandler the two the two sort of gods of crime fiction. Really, the thing about Chandler is he's so readable. His writing flows so well. You look at it, the sentences, they're not just like uh, poorly written. They're, they're so well constructed. He's got a very strong voice. He's always got a great description. Um, perhaps for the modern reader, too much description of characters. He always says what they wear and everything. But that, that you know, very distinct when you're reading it. It's very vivid. And I just think his style is such a stylish writer. Um, so I think he's what you would call a literary crime writer in that he's as stylish and as literary as any any uh, well-known literary writer. And one of the most important American writers, I think, of the last hundred years is Chandler. 
Uh, one of the underlying plot points in the novel uh, seems to be this this kind of organized criminal activity in the wild mountains. Most crime novels uh, seem to be set in either America or Britain, but Australia also has this seedy underbelly unto itself. Um, I, I know you, John, you do a lot of research into the, the dark side of Australia for your for your work. Um, what sorts of cases are you looking after currently? Well, at the moment, I, I actually wrote a book um, called Detective Work, which was based on a case uh, of, of a woman who went missing or Revelle Balmain in 1994. And she, she was an escort and a model, mm. and she turned and she just uh, she went missing. She didn't come home one night after seeing a client, and I, I sort of wrote a, a, a novel about it using that case as the basis for it. Um, but then after I wrote that, I started to think about. Uh, I was more and more fascinated with the case, and I've been, so I've been trying to think of. I've been researching even more, trying to write a now a non-fiction book about the actual case as well. So I've been researching that, finding all the coroner's uh, papers and trying to interview the old detectives who, who were on the case back in the 90s, but um, they're pretty old now. Yeah. I mean, it's an unresolved case, obviously. And, uh, yeah, it's a cold I, case. I, I know that the, the reward for new information about, about Balmain is up to $250,000, apparently. Yeah. Is this yeah, normal correct. for a murder investigation of 20-something years old or...? I don't know if it's normal, but um, yeah, it's a really perplexing case. So it's it's one of the strangest. That's why I've kept coming back to it. I thought I'd finished after I wrote this sort of novel loosely based on it, but uh, I've kept coming back to the case because it's so fascinating what happened to her, and mm. and they haven't come close to to um, solving it. So yeah, well, we know so little. She was she disappeared, and they found her thing that's kind of scattered through the streets, and that's all we know, right? Yeah, well, it's like out of a Chandler story because, yeah, they found she disappeared apparently outside this hotel. They found her shoes. She had red platform shoes and her keys and her diary, all this scattered around various streets um, in the suburb of Kingsford. And uh, to me, that's sort of like out of a Chandler. That could be a real Chandler novel, I think. Yeah. The shoes. That's what first got me interested, just this idea of this woman disappearing and it. The shoes, because I don't think many women would throw away these shoes. So something's happened to her, mm. whether the murderer's done this or she's, someone else said to me that she might have thrown them out the window of the car to alert people that she's been taken. Obviously, there's a lot of modern media that kind of leans into this true crime space, you know, trying to solve old mysteries. How plausible do you think it is that modern investigations as a source of entertainment can actually make credible ground on a case like this? Well, you're right. There seems to be a lot of it at the moment. There's on Foxtel. There's some show where the woman's trying to solve a case, and um, I don't know. I think some of the cases that haven't been solved, there were problems with the initial investigation, and of course, you know, forensic techniques have improved since then. But I also think that, um, especially if you are uh, like an escort or something like that. The other book I wrote about was uh, Sally Huckstep, and her case was a good example of the police not really caring much, you know, when she was murdered. And I think those attitudes in the police force and in the in society have changed a lot. So I think some of those cases where there wasn't much of an investigation at the time, things can be found since then. That you know, if you if you look a bit deeper, because I think the police in the Huckstep case didn't get, care less. About her being murdered, but with Ravel Balmain, there were mistakes made. And I'm not saying people can solve that crime, but if those mistakes hadn't been made, the crime would have been solved. 
Yeah. Um, as crime novel aficionados, we're all familiar with the rules and, and strictures of, of Knox, Van Dyne. Um, and we even spoke with uh, Sydney author A.B. Patterson on a previous episode about his methods. Um, John, do you have any particular rules or, or code that you follow in all of your works? I don't know if I have any codes, but I, mm. I do like it to be, um, I don't know, tight and, and gripping. And I, um, it was good that you told me about the Chandler story because I went back to it. And, <laughs> but I he still got it, Chandler. You know, you can read him 20 years later, probably 20 years ago I read that, or 10 years and, He's still got that gripping um, style that gets you straight in. So I like that where a story just gets you and you can't stop reading it. And I think Chandler's one of the very few writers. Dashiell Hammett is like that too. And Elmore Leonard, another writer I, I used to love. And James Lee Burke, quite a lot of them. Chandler, um, his writing seems very reactionary to the, the kind of golden age of detective fiction. Uh, I know that he was a little bit uh, critical of that style of writing, having, you know, a, a story for the sake of a puzzle, if that makes sense. Um, I know yeah. that he was very much looking to create this almost Hollywood uh, kind of approach to storytelling where there's always action going on. That, like one of the things that we've noticed in the kind of structure of this story is that each chapter is very explicitly a scene. Um, and I could imagine yeah. them all kind of being produced for a, for a film. No wonder he, all, nearly all his books have been filmed and he wrote for, he wrote for Hollywood as well. So, mm. um, yeah, I think he does write in scenes and, and that, that thing about movement, yeah. which you know, is suited to movies. Well, yeah, he reacted against the cosies, as he called them, the British uh, mysteries, where uh, they were, weren't really about murders as such as about puzzles and things were solved in the drawing room. Well, he took it, he and Hammett, I think, took murder, I think he's got a saying really, he took it out of the drawing rooms and took murder back into the street. Mm. So, um, you know, he, he's about LA, and, and I think that's really good to, to be writing about your city, like Peter Corris wrote about Sydney or Sarah Peretsky wrote about Chicago. So to be writing about your town and making it contemporary, I think that's the secret. With crime fiction, you've always got to make it new to some degree. Mm. You can't just be doing the old stuff. Um, you know, like a murder mystery. I tried to read Agatha Christie recently. And it seems so um, not the right age. I think I really got into her when I was. 12 or yeah, like it's definitely entertaining having those puzzles there and being able to go back and look at them, but they're they're not necessarily the best stories because sometimes it's sacrificed for the sake of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, and and cliche too. Well, Chandler has a good good sort of twist or a um, a good line in it. You know, every page there's some sort of nice little wisecrack or um, you know some little observation, I guess, a wry observation. Yeah, I think it's very interesting looking at. Chandler's work as kind of a tipping point for crime fiction, as well as some of his contemporaries, because, you know, we have the Agatha Christie golden age cozy mysteries before her. And then even after Chandler, you know, Agatha Christie's own club of authors, the detection club started to accept a wider berth of authors into their ranks as, you know, the field of crime fiction started to change more in the direction of Chandler's style. Yeah, that's true. And and today, you know, includes everything, doesn't it? I mean, there's all kinds of crime fiction today. I mean, very popular in Australia, the Outback Noir. And, um, you know, there's there's all sorts of the Scottish Tartan Noir and all sorts of. Um, it's so diverse now, crime fiction. It's nothing like it used to be. But I think it still has that element that it's connected to the city, usually the city the the character lives in or the protagonist, and 
yeah, it's got to be contemporary in some way. You know, it's got to it's got to create the new. I think mm. all the time for people to be gripped by it. Well, uh, this has been Flex and Hertz sharing with John Dale, writer and professor of writing at the University of Technology Sydney. Thank you for joining us today, John. Oh, it was good to talk to you. Now, of course, Herd's in there. You did mention good friend of the show, A.B. Patterson, and there is a picture up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter right now of his books. If you want to win yourself a copy of those, go drop a comment in their comment section. We're giving a couple of copies of each of those away. But we will be back with No Crime in the Mountains in just a second. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are discussing No Crime in the Mountains, chapters one to four by Raymond Chandler, or Chandler. Today we're doing No Crime in the Mountains, chapters one to yes. four on Death of the Reader, and <laughs> we are, well, I'm going to get that bread. I'm going to get that point. I'm I, looking I, forward to I it. I assume it's one point. Am I it is one point for this, this book. one point for this book? I was very tempted Man, to give okay. you half a point because it's a short story. But, wow. But we I'll don't go got, with halves. You got two We don't points. go with halves. You got two points last time. Get out of life. One of which, uh, no, I would have got three except I was rotted out of one. But yeah, you no were, matter. You We've had that discussion. We don't need to dwell on it. What we do need to dwell on, Herds, on is who sun- committed this crime. The embers of that war still burn. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, who committed this crime? It's an excellent question. we got to get into that. So, Was it the man, what? Charlie, who messes with his pronunciations? I don't think just so. Just like I, me? I don't think it's Charlie who's done the killing. Uh, not of everybody, at uh-huh. least. This is the thing that not I'm Not of everybody? With. Because there's been two murders so far. Are you Maybe. saying there's more than one killer? Um, Potentially. That is I don't vehemently look, anti-Van look, Dyne, sir. Look, that's something that I'm working on right now. That's You've given me a story that I it definitely does not adhere to the Van Dyne rules. Um, and it's something that I'm I'm kind of trying to puzzle out the story mm. uh, right now so I can get in my head in the space so that next week I can just put, this is the killer. Um, but that said, I don't even know if that's going to be the case because this is a noir novel and those novels sometimes just have multiple killers. It's like part of, I don't know, some kind of mob or something that might exist in the yes, story. Yes, it sounded like you were um, you were leaning on a, a crime so gang look, of some sorts in the first the part. Deal. Here's the deal. I'm, li- I'm listening. Something, something that has stood out to me in this story is that A, Mm-hmm. Uh, that gentleman, Charlie, who likes to play with the pronunciation of words and sounds very much like an Asian caricature. Uh, and B, all the other characters who are to do with crime mm-hmm. have accents. It doesn't identify what this accent is, but it's not American. So we're dealing with, I think, maybe a family or maybe a couple of families. Like, clearly the other people that that, that are involved in this crime, like, don't have that same accent that Charlie has, or at least can speak better English, like more reliably. But I, I don't know. Maybe there's like a feud between like two ethnically different families in this like crime outfit. I don't know. Because as we know, the crime that we're actually dealing with here beyond murder, the murder mystery is counterfeit bills, um, which requires mm-hmm. like a machine and a setup. And I'm just going to say it now. I think the whole hotel, like, management is in on this. I think I that see. this is, like, a crime ring that's being run out of the hotel. Because um, if we pay close attention to Charlie, when he corners our good detective, he doesn't shoot him, for one thing. And he's very quick about checking for both his gun and his wallet, probably to confirm that he's a detective. Mm-hmm. Because if you know anything about organized crime, it's that if you cut, if you start killing cops, that's going to bring way more heat than what you need. I agree. Um, then, of course, we get in the question of, like, why didn't they just hurry up and move the body, but maybe they didn't have the boat at that time? 
It's something that I'm kind of working on my head. But the point is, this is all organized crime, and that means that Mr. Lacey's got himself caught up in something really, really bad. Mm. Um, I, I'm of the impression that uh, when we get to the interrogation with Mrs. Lacey, we find out that there's been like some counterfeit money found in a shoe that she took to the shoe store. Um, I think that she probably knew that this like handoff or whatever was going to happen, but Mr. Lacey didn't. So when Mr. Lacey was like, I'll just go get my money back. Wait, why is it all counterfeit bills? This is weird. He's been pulled into something that, uh, he, he really shouldn't yeah. to put the, to put it that way. <laughs> Little details that have been jumping out at me. Uh, the ant on the gun barrel the ant has on the been gun barrel? eating away at me for the past week, trying to figure out whether it's the seed of an idea of a theory or if it's just rubbish. <laughs> um, so because the, the idea that sprang into my head was that why would an ant be on a gun barrel that's been recently fired? Mm-hmm. So I went crazy of like, well, actually the scorch mark in, in Lacey's chest is like, it's only implied. Like there's apparently a dinner plate of blood, which is like a lot of blood, but whatever. Um, there's, we're, we're told that the light is dim. And so uh, Evans can't even confirm that the body is dead properly. Um, so it's entirely possible this is a setup. Um, that's certainly something that I'm like running through my head. I'm not, not set on it yet, but that's something that I'm like passing through. Um, but yeah, there's this ant crawling this gun barrel. And I was like, well, why, why would a, you know, a gun barrel be crawled on by an ant? This has been fired. Turns out guns cool in like 10 minutes and, uh, Evans have been searing for half an hour. So there is some, some room for that to be, uh, you know, just a, just an extra detail. Well, I, I think also it's 10 minutes to like room temperature, right? Sure. It'd probably cool to touchable temperature with within less than that. Exactly. I think that it is a real corpse. I think that this is a cover-up. Like, it's a classic, like, mob stitch-up, you know, trying to pull one over on the detectives, trying to tie up a loose end, all that sort of thing. Um, I also think that, though, Mrs. Lacey is obviously embroiled in the crime mm-hmm. of the counterfeit money and the mob ring, all that sort of nonsense, I don't think that she directly killed her husband. I don't think she's our murder criminal. Um, and it's because of the dog. Once again, we get a theme here. Hold on. <laughs> are we about to break another Van Tyne rule, Herds? Which, which one are we breaking now? We're you breaking 20E. No, no, no. There's no barking involved here. Okay. It's just playful snuggling. <laughs> no, because I think that this is more of a, like, my expectations based on writers in general. You don't give a cute puppy dog to someone who's actually a murderer most of the time. Wait. Okay. How does this work? Look, what's so the, the grounding here's of this thing. here? Here's the thing. It's not, this is not solid theory work here, but what I will say is I think that the like half, because it's half coyote. I don't know what the other half is, but it's a cute puppet dog that's like half coyote, apparently. It's like a metaphor for the mountains. It's got a savage underside, right. straight up so, what that is. But I think that by pairing Mrs. Lacey with this like cute dog, I think we're being told that like she's okay. Like she's not a killer. Uh-huh. I don't think she's like familiar with guns or anything like that. Okay. Uh, we were also m- mentioned uh, by Mrs. Lacey that, that Mr. Lacey gambles a lot. Mm-hmm. We've had, you know, all these mentions about poker and, and I, don't know, I don't know about slot machines, but like the races, like I would not be surprised if they're using those gambling locations, those gambling dens of vice and, and mm-hmm. crime to, you know, launder the money uh, or introduce, use the counterfeit bills in some way. All right. Is that is that everything you have, Herds? Because uh, I reckon I reckon it's time to pose a counter I think, theory. I think the boatman, the bedman, and the whacker man are all the same person. Okay, done. Duly noted. Throw it at me. All right, Herds. I think Fred Lacey has faked his death, and nobody else knows. Okay, because he's asked a detective to come here. You would expect that a detective can solve a crime. Sure. So the detective would get there and go. 
okay, all right, let me solve this murder. And then he finds out that Fred Lacey's still alive. He goes to Fred Lacey. Fred says, yo, John, this is what's going down. We need to stop it because mm. he's found out that his wife is embroiled in this ring of corruption. Okay. His wife can't escape the easy way, so he's got to go underhanded, go under under the desk with John Evans and find a way to spring his wife from this den of corruption. Because, of course, you know, when we're dealing with counterfeit goods, the kind of people that would be able to identify counterfeit goods is detectives okay. and people who are good at counterfeiting things. It's true. Thus, his wife. Okay. So his wife is the only other person in this story, I think, so far, that knows that Fred Lacey is still alive. And this is all a stitch up to try and get them out of their mountains. You know what? I, I like the theory, but if that's if Fred Lacey is still alive, then what the heck is going with Charlie and his gang? They have a corpse. Like, there's mm-hmm. a corpse that exists. I don't believe that we're being on a dummy corpse. So either Fred Lacey is very good at pretending to be dead, which I said is possible. Why, why or- couldn't we have a dummy corpse? When we're dealing with counterfeiting, you know, dummy corpses <laughs> is just another form of counterfeit. Because we saw the corpse. I don't know. I feel like there you would be You were the one that clues. said that it was in dim light herds. I know. The the detail that was called into question was the existence of the scorch mark. Mm-hmm. If you were dealing with an actual dummy corpse, I think that the death wound would be the most pronounced part of the dummy. Um, also, he was able to produce a pretty accurate description of Fred Lacey to his wife, which I suppose she could have lied about. She could have said, yeah, that's totally him when it's not him at all. But I think that's just too far. Well, I, I mean, but if that's the piece of evidence like, you're leaning on, that's also the most plausible thing for me, right? Next week, we are going to be covering chapters five to nine of No Crime in the Mountains, and that'll be your last chance to put in your bets for your points, herds. That's it. That's the one. We're going in. We're going ham. I'm almost tempted to offer you a bonus point if you can figure out what you should get points for. Because and That's what I was going to say. I don't feel like there is going to be a killer. I feel like it's just going to be like, did you figure out where but, Fred Lacey's corpse There is. are points on the table, so I figure if you get one, you're going to get the other by definition. So there's only one on the table, Hertz. Right. I'm sorry. You know what? If you want to surprise me with an extra point at the end of this, let me know. I if could I'm surprise going, you with an extra point here, but it might be just like the point of an arrow as it goes through your face. I'm scared. It's been here in front of you all along. It's no wonder that you died so long ago. Wow. And oh. I've been impersonating you this whole time, just like Fred Lacey is impersonating every character in this story. But Felix would never... What? <laughs> Oops, whatever, impersonate Fred Lacey. What is this? This is rubbish. <laughs> this has been Death of the Reader. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next time. <laughs>